I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Might as well get this gold, this gold with, with Iris. Um, I, my, my physicians the other day told me to uh, um, switch to a Mediterranean diet because, uh, Iris, I don't know if you know this, but I, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, lived, with C, I lived with CF, but um, I got on Trikafta, which is like a, a, a game-changing wow. medication for cystic fibrosis. And um, since I started the medication in November of 2021, I've gained like almost 30 pounds. And wow. The reason for that is because like my diet, my like the CF diet is like a high fat, high calorie diet. We need like twice the amount of calories a normal person needs in, in, in the run of a day. And uh, I've gained so much weight. Now my, my physician, I was like, do I still need this high fat, high calorie diet? And they were like, did no one say, did no one what? talk to you about this already? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They were this like, wasn't in the pamphlet? Yeah, they were like, you know what? You don't, you don't need it anymore. Uh, maybe switch to the Mediterranean diet. You know, that could be a, could be a good way to go about it. But man, it's hard. It's it like honestly, it's hard. going thirty four years of your life, um, eating burgers and fries. I mean, fuck yeah, dude! Eating like <laughs> eating whatever, whatever like just jacks the calories up. To try to switch that is really tough. But um, I might be the beer, Jer. Oh, it's the it's the beer for <laughs> show. Like it's for sure the beer. <laughs> oh gosh, uh, we are sitting down today with uh, one of our. Uh, one of our old friends, uh, 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 a favorite guest of ours that we've had on the show uh, all the way back in 2020. Uh, we spoke to Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, uh, pres- uh, MD, principal investigator, uh, participates in clinical research. Um, and when we had Iris on in the past, we were speaking about vaccine hesitancy That's right. at a time that, w- that was um, you know, kind of a hot topic. Um, in, in November of 2020 and, uh, it was a beautiful conversation and Iris, I gotta say like, we're, we're so elated to have you back on the show. Welcome. I am so thrilled to be back here. I had such a good time. Many, many thanks for having me back. <laughs> so Iris, uh, you know, with this, this time we actually just brought you on because, uh, in, in Nova Scotia, it's so hard to get a family doctor. So we just actually, we're, <laughs> yeah, we actually it. just have a bunch of things to show you. So you know, if I can go first, you know, you know, you know, uh, you, know you know what, Iris, I, so I think you might've, this is, this ended up being just very serendipitous. I think you, I think you might, we might've booked you on to have, to have you on the show, maybe like the, the, the next day or, or two days later. Um, I, I think Jer told Jer Jer said to me in the office last week, like, "Hey, uh, Iris is going to be on the show again." Yeah, and I said, "You know what's funny is that I was on Twitter last week and I posted something, and then a and then a, a tweet of Iris's came up, and um and and I, and then I liked it because it was really sweet. It was it was about a it, it was about her prescribing a it was a prescription that she wrote for a puppy of choice. 
And then, That's and then, and then, like two days later, I opened up Twitter again and I saw the same tweet, and it was it had like almost a million views on it. What, like, give us the backstory wow. of, of what what was going on there with this puppy puppy prescription? Yeah, this is so crazy. So the patient had known trauma in her life, and she was now facing a major challenge. She lived alone, and I'm sorry to be speaking in such generalities, but I, you know, there's patient confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Even her dog was old and dying. Ooh. And so the matter is, this was a sentient being that she used to come home to every day. And now that she herself was facing a pretty serious illness, she had this pet who was also. And so I thought maybe a puppy would be of help. You know, talk about helpless as a family doctor. We, You know, there is such a thing. It was a family doctor listening to something and understanding the profound nature of loneliness and hearing it described and what that meant to her. And I just, I just wrote the prescription and I thought, you know, let her get out and walk a little bit. And then I thought the love part, I wish I could always write prescriptions for love. You know, wouldn't it be <laughs> every realm? Like, think about it, not just a romantic love life, Imagine a prescription from a doctor that it could actually come true, that love within a family, love with your love with the person you're rooming with, you know, like a good space. But a dog, hey, that's pretty guaranteed. You know, so it's kind of nice. It was very it was very uh, it was very it was very uh, it was very funny to see because I because when I when I saw it a couple days later and I saw that it had been viewed by so many people, I went, that makes a lot of sense, because when I saw it, it looked like it looked like it needed to be viral and it ended up being <laughs> so. Know, I, I'm curious about that, Iris. So like, like when you, as a doctor with a prescription pad and you just, you can like fill, I mean, you can just write shit on that. Like, is there, <laughs> are there rules in terms of like what you can pres- prescribe or is it like basically like, Hey, you're the doctor, you know, you understand your patient. Um, and in this situation, like this, this type of prescription could be helpful. Like, I, I guess what I mean, is pharmacies what is aren't like, dishing out dogs. I know. Like you can't, I mean, you can't like take that prescription and like cash it in somewhere. Yeah. Right. And like write off the cost of adopting a dog, a dog against like your, I don't know, like it's not like covered obviously. Um, but, but how does, like, how does that work when you prescribe that? Like, what is the point of doing that? I guess. You know what? I, I think it's interesting that when you go to medical school and you do your postgraduate training, you're taught what you can and cannot do. And then you spend a lifetime and a career unlearning what you've learned. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of life that's really like that. So I've written on my prescription pad things like, go placid amid the haste. Do you know Mm -hmm. that poem, go placid? Well, it basically talks about living life and not worrying so much about all of the cacophony, that crazy noise that never seems to ever cease. You know, that that's the space that I'm trying to get at, because sometimes we just have to live the whole catastrophe. And I think, you know, part of you has written the book on that. We know that loneliness is an equivalent to smoking when it comes to health. It is that damaging to somebody's health. It's very pro-inflammatory. It's damaging to their both, both your physical and their emotional well-being. And I think you and I could probably have a debate. I should be able to write a prescription. And in fact, it's an evidence-based prevention. 
It really does help people. It lowers blood pressure by 10 points. And that's true for both the top and bottom number. So it's pretty incredible what it does. You take a look at the studies done on dementia. You know, for people who are older, their memory scores improve when they have a pet. Mm. So do their processing times. That means how quickly they respond to a stimulus. Like it, it actually gets better. So there's a lot of metrics out there that say it should be a first-line treatment. What would you rather have, puppy of choice or drug of choice? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, puppy of choice. And then, <laughs> and then, not to mention the, not to mention the, the, the sort of like downstream benefits that come with having, um, that ha- like having a dog has, like the dog needs exercise, and so by way of the dog needing exercise, you get you get gentle mm-hmm. exercise, which is extremely, I mean, especially gentle exercise, extremely beneficial for longevity and and our, our health span. Yeah. I mean, not to, not to like stay on this for too long, but, um, I got a puppy a year and a half ago and I like, I can't fizz like the feeling of just thinking about my dog right now. And like that feeling of love that like boils up in my chest, I can't even put into words how good that feels. And, you know, going outside on the days where it's like minus 20 degrees out and you could very easily stay huddled inside all day, but you know, this, this little creature needs to get outside and he needs to go for a walk and get exercise and go to the bathroom. And so you, you bundle up and go anyway, only to find out that like, hey, it's actually not that bad out here. Like you dress appropriately for the weather and yeah, put your furs you get some on. sunshine and yeah. and it's a beautiful day. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's like the, it's the, it's the, it is the, um, if, I don't know if anybody's familiar. I don't know if you're familiar um, with Arthur Brooks, Iris, but um, an author, he's a social scientist at uh, Harvard and he, uh, he teaches he teaches a course on happiness to Harvard's MBA students, and he and he he his center his central focus is relationships, relationships with your family, with your kids, with your friends, with your pets, and how crucial. I mean, he basically boils it down to love, like that. Love is lo- the best longevity medicine. Like this is the thing that's going to like like at the end of the day, the thing that's going to the thing that is going to like keep you ticking is the love and like the meaningful connections that you create in your life because of the like explosion of benefits that comes with having relationships that mean something to you. Mm-hmm. And so like when you say that thing about your dog, I'm like, like that's a thing that like give, it gives you life. Isn't, that the, isn't he the guy who did the happiness project that followed yes. it a hundred years or something and followed one group and just kept following them and found out at the end of their lives, what really mattered the most. And what mattered to them was, in fact, these relationships. And I think you're absolutely right. An animal extends that sort of relationship. All you have to do, and I want, you know, you mentioned your puppy. Okay, so here's a challenge. Picture your puppy's face in your mind's eye. And imagine you're looking right at him. What does he do? He looks (laughs) right back at you. (laughs) This, this This is wonderful connection. And, and, and nothing even has to happen. You don't have to feed him. You don't have to walk him. You don't have to do anything else. But all of a sudden, there's an understanding from one sentient creature to another fellow sentient creature. And it's this beauty that I think is it, it's, it's actually quite profound. So do I wish I could put it in a capsule and sell it? Dang right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It, it's interesting. I think about um, uh, uh, like, like how holistic our 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 health is and the healthiness of, of our lives are, are. And I think of, you know, I was also talking before we started recording about this video that I was watching where you were talking about the importance of sleep and um, not to like dive straight into that, but 
I'm curious about being a, a, a physician and having to sort of assess people as they come into your office and identify like what might be going on in their lives and how you might be able to help them. I imagine it's like the way that I used to think of going to doctors, like, oh, I'm sick. I'm feeling this thing. I need to go get medicine to get better. So I go and I do that. But like underlying that problem that, that, that made me sick in the first place, there's probably something else that's going on, you know, whether it's a, whatever it is, there's probably a thousand different things that it could be. And so I'm curious, like when is, is the idea of what a physician or general practitioner does in terms of how they help people who are coming in to see them for their health? Like, is the, is the idea of what your job is changing in terms of how you look at somebody's health holistically, like the relationships that they have in their lives, um, their sleep patterns and things like that? I think you're hitting on something that's really important in family medicine. And there's different levels of care. Unfortunately, one out of five Canadians have zero care. So let's let's have that right up front. But for the people who are lucky enough to have a family doctor, there, you know, so there's a level of care that basically says, Yeah, what are you here for? You know, so they, you know, whatever it is, here's your script, bye. There's a, another level of care, though, that says, what do you think led up to that? And this is the beauty of family medicine, of why family doctors, when people have them, they're less likely to suffer mental illness. They're less likely to have chronic conditions. They live longer. They're less likely to go to an emergency room. It's because we're getting into these deeper levels that make us address the underlying issues that lead to problems. So what do you think led to this infection that you now have. And then if you even want to go deeper, like, where do you stop? Why did you do that activity? So fine, you got a pneumonia, you smoke, but why are you smoking? You know, that's one of the most addicting things a, pre a person can have. You know, we talk about alcohol and we're like, but, but there's a bigger question there. You know, these things are extremely addicting. Oreo cookies are addicting. Hey, <laughs> we were talking about burgers and fries. Those are super addicting too. So, so the thing about it is we have to understand like what, what drives that engine, right? Mm -hmm. And not come at it from a judgy perspective, but come at it from a, a space of you're a pretty smart person. What is driving that? And there, therein lies the ability to truly heal when we understand the underlying things that lead up to problems. Is, is that an evolution in family medicine or is this what you've learned through doing your unlearning of what you were taught in school? Like how common is this like third level of, of, of type of doctor who, when you go into their office really cares about getting to like the root, if you want to get to the root of the problem. Like I think of, um, I think of my therapist, for example, and like, since I started going to therapy, I've started to understand so much more about myself and probably about a whole bunch of different things that affect my overall health, like my ability to fall asleep at night, my ability or motivation to exercise and, and have healthy habits. Um, but I've like, I've looked at that as like, Hey, this is my therapist. If I was going to my family doctor, I would go and see them probably about something, you know, to do with a physical pain that I'm feeling or an ailment. But I feel like since mental health, um, and mental illness has has started to um, become more common to talk about that 
maybe that's creating a change in family medicine too, but is this an actual change that's happening in family medicine or is this like what you've learned um, through your evolution? It's what I've learned. And I, you know, after having the privilege of having, you know, basically the same patients for over two decades, that's a real privilege. And I think the privilege is extended both ways, both from the patients to me and from me to the patients. You know, but unfortunately, what we see with so many people not having a family doctor is the reversal of that. What are you here for? Because mm-hmm. there's many patients who need too many, you know, we can't begin to address it. And that's where I'm hoping, you know, today's conversation may take us a little bit. How can we make the most of family doctors, which are extremely, it's an extremely limited resource. Mm. And I'll with you, we are not doing what we should be doing. We simply mm. aren't. We've, we're tasked with what truly would take us. If we were to do everything that the guidelines told us to do, I would need a 27-hour day to see the same number of patients I'm now seeing. And you know what would happen to me? I'd burn out and I'd retire early. That's what would happen to me if I followed every one of those guidelines telling me what I have to do. Well, never mind, I'm incentivized to do it too. Let's not talk about that. I'm incentivized to do things that take me away from seeing the patients who actually need to see me now because they have a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the time management aspect of this is really fascinating. Um, it's not something that I've really thought about until sitting down to talk with you today, but um, you had sent us an article before before our chat today. And just like in summary, that article here, um, primary care physicians in the U.S. would need 26.7 hours each day to provide preventative chronic disease and acute care to a typical panel uh, of ad- adult patients, according to a simulation study. The results showed 14.1 hours per day would be needed for preventative care. That's it. So just remember that 14.1 hours per day just for preventative care. Seven Can I point- re- yes, please, please. Really quickly. So what is preventative care? Let's define that. Exactly. Giving out vaccines. Do you need an MD after your name to give out a shot? I don't think so. I think that the pharmacies are doing a really good job of that. You take a look at Alberta and they've got nurses who do a far better job than family doctors had done. I'm just Mm -hmm. saying it. That's one aspect of prevention, vaccines. The other aspect, it's cancer screenings. Mm -hmm. Cancer screenings. So, you know, we're spending a crazy amount of time screening the worried well. So you know what a screening test does? You guys are all young. You don't know. But a screening test takes somebody who feels totally fine and does not have any symptoms or signs of a disease and then screens for that disease. So I'm checking for cervical cancer. Guess what? There goes a 20 to 30 minute appointment that you'll never see again, like I'm just saying. And how many am I checking? 450 people to find one case. Whoa. About that. So I've I've spent 450 appointments to find one single case. Now, what about colorectal cancer? That number is about 100. I'm seeing 100 healthy people talking to them about it and everything else so that I can find one case. So you said just now, 47%, that's almost half of a doctor's time spent doing preventions. Yeah. I mean, when it comes, when it comes to, when it comes to screening, like who, who are the folks that are 
Um, you know, like I, I can, I can see myself going to my, my pharmacist and getting, uh, you know, my COVID-19 vaccine or, or my, my flu shot. Um, but who are the, who, like, who are the people that could step in there to, to relieve the, the GPs to do things like screening for, you know, cervical cancer or, uh, you know, uh, rectal cancer or, you know, what, what have you. So the way it would work is this colorectal cancer we screen it by asking a few questions to, to, to tell us, does this person need a colonoscopy or do they just need that poop test? Now, what is the poop test? You just smear some poop on some cards, you send it in, and you find out if you have four out of five colorectal cancers. That's how many it'll pick up. So the fact is, if somebody does not have unexplained rectal bleeding, you know, blood in their stool, or they don't have unexplained weight loss, they don't have a family history of colorectal cancer. They don't have an unexplained change in their bowel habits. You know, you could just do a questionnaire and then and then cut the family doctor out. This could be done at a pharmacy, right? Mm. So you get this questionnaire, check, 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 no, no, no. And then the pharmacist simply orders the screening test for you. Right. And guess Is what? Way better for the family doctor because now all of a sudden we've cut it down. Nine times out of 10, we don't have to see that patient. Is it almost like a solution of like, uh, for lack of a better word, like triaging the patient before they get there? And I just think of that in the sense of like, if I called my family doctor, I don't have a family doctor, by the way. I don't know why I keep saying that I do. But but <laughs> if I like, if I theoretically had a family doctor, which I'm on a wait list of like over 100,000 people to get one, if I had one and I called up and said, Hey, doc, I want to come see you. They're like, yeah, sure. Book an appointment. Um, and then they book me in for 30 minutes of their time or whatever, even though they don't even know why I'm coming in. And then maybe I'm asking for another follow-up appointment to be screened for something because I just feel like they I do might ask have... you why when you book an appointment. Really? Well, I guess I don't know. You don't because know because I... you don't have one. <laughs> yeah. But do, do they? Because like before, I mean, I can yeah, just you're book only allowed to do one thing too. Yeah. 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 When you book an appointment, they'll say, what's the, you know, what's the, what's the nature of like the reason for your visit or something. And if you say like, oh, uh, well, I, I just feel uncomfortable. I would just want to see the doctor. Yeah. Then they'd be like, yeah, sure. Come on in. Right. I mean, like, cause, cause I, so I, under, I, I, I think that was an important distinction to make there, Iris, that like, cause when you like the way that it, the way that it sounded at first, it sounded a little bit like we're doing too much screening, but we're not talking about doing less screening. We're talking about putting the screening into the hands of, of, of the, like the, the like managing that time better in a different place so that the, so that the, the time that you have with patients that matters that I don't so want doctors can do doctory say, yeah, things. Yeah, do, so doctors can do doctor things. So pharmacists can do pharmacist things. So that nurses can do nurse things. Like so, everybody's doing. It, you know, you're not you're not you're not mixing and matching all these like different all these different services. If anything, it's the other way where more patients would have access to cancer screening. Right. Right. Because look at your situation. Okay, add a few years to your life. You're now over fifty. You need to be screened for colorectal cancer. You think you're appropriate for the poop test? You just go over to the pharmacy. You don't have a family doctor. All of a sudden, this entire swath of people, one out of five Canadians, that's quite a lot of numbers, you know, suddenly can go to the pharmacist to get that. And, and what have they done? They freed up a critically needed appointment with a family doctor. That's what they've done. And all of a sudden, you've got this whole swath. And that's just from colorectal cancer screening alone. Now, I want you to take that same thought and extend it to other forms of cancer screening. So British Columbia, you say, 
how, how am I going to get my pap smear in a pharmacy? Well, you guys wouldn't ask that question, but you know, <laughs> I said, you might. <laughs> so this is the thing that the truth is there's only one cause of cervical rectal cancer. I'm going to let you guess, you know what that is? What's the sole cause of cervical rectal cancer? Hint, it also causes cancer H of the penis. I'm just saying. <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know. Oh, HPV? Uh, yeah, right. Uh, HPV. Right. No, yes. It's the it. human papillomavirus. At first, it's a vaccine-preventable disease, 90% of cases, and it's good for everybody 45 and under. And yes, a pharmacist, I think, can provide it. You know, so the other part of it is, is that because it's the sole cause of cervical cancer, in theory, all a woman would have to do is take that long swab. Hey, we saw these when we had COVID-19. We still have that going around. And you put it, not to get overly graphic, right up into the vagina. You swish it around for five to 10 seconds. You take it out. You send it in. They're going to test it the same way they tested for the COVID virus, PCR testing. And the only ones that would have to be seen by a family doctor are, in fact, the ones who are positive. Because if you don't have HPV, you're not going to get cervical cancer, period. Um, Iris, Interesting. I'm, I'm curious in terms of in terms of cancer screening, my um, uh, somebody that uh, was a uh, was a coach of mine growing up, I had heard had had gotten cancer, had gotten um uh, I can't remember if it was stomach cancer, I guess stomach cancer, colon cancer, I guess that's all connected. But um, I found out that that he had gotten a like a screening test uh, in the mail. Like that the government had sent it out. And I'm not sure if that's a Nova Scotia thing, if that's a federal thing, if that happens in, in Ontario, um, where you are, where you receive like a, a, a kit. And I, I believe it was a stool. I want to say it was a stool sample. Like what, what, how, what kind of like role is that playing? And is that need to, is that like a program that needs to be expanded to, you know, to kind of speak to what you're saying here in terms of relieving doctors, um, freeing up that time? You're right. So that's the fecal immunochemical testing or FIT testing done for colorectal cancer screening. That's what you're describing. Yeah. And practices have tried to just send them out saying, hey, you're due for your cancer screening. Here you go. Everybody just do it. Everybody over 50, we're going to send it to people between the ages 50 and 74. And you know what the problem is? No engagement. And what winds up happening is, is it turns into kind of a money loss because mm. people don't respond to it. So people need to be at least somewhat motivated and somewhat invested in the idea for it to take off. So imagine if instead, every time you went to the pharmacy, you were faced with a sign that said something like, Jeremy, are you up to date in your cancer screening? And every time you saw it, after a while, you might go to the pharmacist and say, what is this? Like, how do I, how do I do this? And then all of a sudden it's the Ikea effect. You know, you're spending time building the furniture and it, it means something to you. So, so you fill out this questionnaire and then you get it in the mail. And all of a sudden the response rate is, is a much, much higher than just sending it, you know, de novo, nobody knows what's going on. It, it doesn't work as well. Mm.
Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts. Now, now this is this is the preventative care uh, side of things. Coming back to that article, uh, preventative care. They said fourteen point one hours. You know, according to that simulation study, seven point two hours is de- dedicated to chronic uh, disease care. When yeah, we're talking so- about so, so like let, let's let's dive into that. You know, seven point two hours. That's a, a, a large chunk. A large chunk of the time, you know, throughout the day, uh, to be to be dedicated to one particular thing, um, wh- you know, is there is is there some sort of answer to to relieving the you know the 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 GP of of that burden of seven point two hours of chronic chronic disease care? Yeah. So this is another thing that the research has clearly shown. Family doctors do not do as well. So you've got CF. You need a team. Yeah. You've got diabetes. We're talking about a team. You know, the ophthalmologist, you got the physio, you got, you know, the person who's looking after each part of that diabetics needs. Because left alone, the family doctor, it's really a tremendous amount we need to look after. We're looking after all of their drugs. We're looking after their eyes, their kidneys, their feet, their nerves, their mood. I mean, it just goes on and on. So what winds up happening is the waiting room is getting full as we speak. Like, no joke. And not only that, but there's a whole nother group that we're, I'm not even seeing. And that's the group that cannot get in to see me because I'm devoting so much time to this one patient who has this chronic condition that genuinely needs better servicing than what I, as a single person, am able to provide. Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, it's a wild thought for me to, I, I mean, I, I don't really know how, how like, the healthcare system works in general across Canada, but, like, I, I do get a sense that, you know, I, I have, I, I go to the CF clinic at the QE2 hospital here in Halifax, the CF clinic for, for adults, um, and it is, a, it is a specialized clinic that I go to every six months, and I sit in a room for, you know, uh, upwards of four, four hours at a time. And I see the entire team that comes through. I see the, the you know the RT, the physician, the dietitian, the the social worker, the psychiatrist. I see them all in one day, one sitting, one go. I can't I, like I I never in my I do have a family doctor, and I never go to my family doctor for CF based stuff. You know, I'm going to see my family doctor if I want to, you know, get a referral to to a ADHD clinic, or if I want to get an STI check, or you know what have you. Um, I can't imagine having to go to my family doctor to sit there and have them manage my, my chronic illness, my like, you know, CF based stuff. It would it, kind of be like talking to a support person, like on, like if, like when you call a support line and they, and, yeah. and like that, that person is like supposed to know like a little bit about absolutely everything yeah. and you being like, I really, I need to know about this thing that to do with my CFTR gene mutation. Yes, and you're right. like, Ooh, uh, 
Yeah, that Maybe might be just tough. Hang out. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I, I guess my question is like, when it comes to most chronic diseases, is CF, is cystic fibrosis unique in that situation that like across Canada, there are these dedicated clinics that are specifically for that chronic disease? Like, are there, are there diabetes clinics like available mm. here in Halifax? Are there, you know, uh, Crohn's colitis clinics that are available for people to go to? How does that work like across the spectrum of diseases within the Canadian healthcare system? So what we need to do is expand those team-based approaches. The vast majority of Canadians lack access to team therapies. And, you know, you're so lucky. Like, I listened to all that. You know, do you know, first, the cost of it, the very fact that you could go and they're putting it into one day under one roof and making your life way easier. It also makes it so that, you know, as you get to know the team members, you kind of know where they're going to come from mm -hmm. and you want to that you're doing what you need to do. And CF, that connective piece, that ongoing relationship has been shown to make a very big difference. In fact, some of the best institutions in North America, they see their patients pretty often and even mild changes in their pulmonary function testing, they're on them right away. Hey, yeah. what's going on here? I see that it's gone down a tiny bit. What are you doing? You know, so if we were to use that, for diabetes for everybody, not only would they have better care, it would alleviate critically needed appointment times with family doctors. You know, think about it. If I'm to devote all my time and try to do everything for every patient, even the things that are evidence-based, which only represents 14, 1-4% of, of the care that I do, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to get it done. And, and mm -hmm. I think you know, doctors are selected for perfectionism. Like we want to be perfect. We want to do this and that. And then you're faced with the reality that time is really limited and you're going to choose what, how you spend that time. And that's what I'm, I'm saying. Hey, we can do a lot better by, by not having so many preventions coming into the family doctor, by, by giving out patients with cystic fibrosis, with diabetes, with certain chronic conditions, including obesity to clinics, to team-based approaches that would do better jobs and yeah, I, free yeah. for things that, you know, for taking more patients. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I got to say, like, I'm internally grateful for, for the, the system that CF has, has at play here. And like, in, in, I mean, it's, it's across Canada. Like, you know, I went to the CF clinic at St. Mike's hospital in, in Toronto, like the, the, the CF clinics across Canada are fucking amazing and it, it really is like a it's a huge lifesaver and the and the other thing too like i mean you know maybe this is an aside but there's also the the and you kind of touched on the cyrus but the community-based aspect to it like i feel a part of a community when i'm at the cf clinic i don't feel like i'm at the fucking doctors you know i feel like i'm there to see a team of people that are invested in my best interest I know them. I know those doctors. Like I know my physicians well. I know the RT. I know that when she comes in, she's going to want to talk about her vacation that she took to Mexico. And like while she's, you know, getting me to blow into this machine and yada, yada. It's like you, you develop a relationship with these people and that relationship plays into the care that you receive because you feel cared for. You mm -hmm. feel seen. You feel heard. You feel, you feel a part of a community. And like that, I mean, that is just like, it is Again, like just eternally grateful that patient, you know, they have patient, access to that. It's patient-centered care. Yeah, patient-centered yeah. care. I mean, we're exactly. having, yeah. we're having like a, we're, we're at a, we're at a, we, we, I feel like we're at a crossroads in, in this country, in, in Canada specifically. Um, I know that we have a broad, we have an international 
<clears throat> audience, but a big chunk of, of our listenership is in Canada. And, and we're, we seem to be at a crossroads in terms of like our, the conversation around healthcare. Like it's a very, very hot yeah. topic right now and has been for the past couple, uh, past few months. I mean, it feels like, you know, this experience brought on by the pandemic, a lot of cracks were exposed and now, and now like things are seemed to feels like things are like kind of duct taped together. Um, and, and, and now we're, 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 all, we're talking about spending a lot more money where there's a big conversation between provinces and the federal government about, you know, money be, that's going to be, um, spent on the healthcare system. Like where does, or where does this sort of like team based approach based on certain conditions and stuff like, is that, is that in the, is that in the conversation at all on any level or kind of, is this something that, is this something that you've been thinking about, but like, you know, outside of you and, you know, maybe some people that you, um, you know, some of your colleagues isn't really broadly being talked about. And you know, you're hitting such a raw nerve right now. You have <laughs> no idea. So do I that throwing more money into the system will solve the many problems that we have? The interminable waiting times for specialists, we're talking over half a year. The interminable wait to see a family doctor, if you're lucky enough to get one, one of the 100,000 people on the waiting list, hello. I'm sorry to say it, but you know, since 1971, we have had a 350% increase in the number of family doctors, and the population's gone up by 75%. So think about it. This is not a problem of not having enough family doctors. Mm. So I'd say, well, where are they? What happened to them? And the answer is they're not necessarily doing regular family practice. We don't even know what they're doing. So this holds hands with a whole other problem of just simply dropping money into the laps of, I'm not sure where it's going to go. It's up to the individual province and territory to fight it out with, the, I guess, the prime minister to figure out how they're going to personally spend the money. But I can tell you, the lack of transparency is appalling. The fact that there's no teeth behind it, right? So we get our information from places like KIHI, which is the Canadian Institute on Health Information. We get, you know, and we've got, of course, the, uh, hang on for a second, they, uh, who is it that looks after it? I'm losing my train of thought. Give me two seconds. It is the, the. It's an acronym for sure. <laughs> no, it's an acronym. I know. I'm just trying to remember. <laughs> hang, on, hang on. You're going to have to do some editing here. That's okay. Yeah, we got it. <laughs> Auditor General. It's the Auditor General. There we go. So, so, you know, the Auditor General looks at the money side of things while Kaihai looks at how long are waits, how many people don't have family doctors. And so they make these wonderful, beautiful, long reports. And what happens after that? Very little. So what needs to happen is that institutions like that, who, who really can measure things objectively, are actually given some power, some teeth, some muscle to actually change what's going on. You know, because this is not a problem of simply money. It's a problem of where's the money going and how is it being spent? You know, and, and can we look at better ways of doing things, optimizing the time of family doctors, optimizing the time of nurse, nurse practitioners, you know, making the most of the pharmacists we have and the RNs we have. Everybody says, oh, we're going we're gonna to use the money to hire more nurses, to mm. which I say, where are you going to get more nurses? Yeah. Where are you going to find them? Yeah, especially, especially with the money that you're paying them right now. Like where, like, where the hell do you think you're going to find them? 
I, I will mm-hmm. I, I will say that I'm I'm like I'm hearing you um I'm hearing you Iris kind of describe some of these things that need to be kind of that we need to um we need to divvy up the appropriate sort of work and tasks and things that need to be done for individuals um uh, like we need to do a better job of allocating or delegating those things to the appropriate uh, people. And I go and I, and I'm realizing that when I go to, uh, I had, I have a, I have a 10 month old daughter and we've been doing like a series of checkups uh, over in her first year. And every time we go, every time we go, it seems like the, some, like a lot of the things that you're talking about is something that I, that I actually get to experience at, at my, um, at my family doctor's clinic. Um, so my fam, my family doctor and my wife's family doctor is, is, uh, we have, we share the same doctor. And so we go to bring our daughter and it is kind of like divvied up between a team of people that have different skills and, um, different skills and tat. Like we go and the nurse practitioner does a whole bunch of stuff. And then the, and then our family doctor comes in and does the, does like the family doctor part and not, and not both of those things. And it gets divvied up appropriately. And I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of thinking about that experience and going, oh, because I remember thinking like, why isn't our family doctor doing this? Because it just kind of seems like, but now I'm looking at it through this lens of going, oh, while my family doctor is not doing that, she's out doing family doctor stuff with somebody else. And that's what's important. And, and the nurse practitioner is in here doing nurse practitioner stuff with us. And then, and then they hand off and they work together in this like really kind of seamless way that I'm seeing kind of like the efficiency in that, in, in, in some of the problems that you've kind of like, that you've exposed in this conversation between how, how that time is not allocated correctly. If we're to go by that study, you know, and we, we add up, you know, take me through it. You've got the numbers right in front of you. What was the percentage spent on preventative care? What was that number again? Preventative care was uh, 7.2, uh, uh, 7.2 hours of 26 7. hours. Sorry, so sorry, sorry. Oh, Preve- almost a quarter. Preventative, preventative was 14.1 14. hours. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Preventative was 14.1. So Let's half, well, well, more than half. Percentage, right? So as a percentage of, it's probably around what, 47%. It's something like that. It's a huge number of hours, right? Correct? Even more, yeah, like yeah, 60, almost 60%. 60%. 60%. Yeah. All right, so you've got you've got a huge chunk right away. Imagine the number of family doctors that would suddenly become available if most of that work, even half of that work, were to be shared with pharmacists. So you know what I talk about with Pap smears and screening for HPV, self screening. That's not yet a reality. It is in some countries. It's not yet in Canada. However, <laughs> British Columbia who, by the way, is amazing at doing research of this nature, is now completing its, its, its research trial to see if, in fact, that could become a reality. Because if we could just screen for HPV, then that would free up a huge number, huge, <laughs> a huge number of appointment times with family doctors that are so needed right now. You know, mm. so... Imagine that. And then colorectal cancer screening, if we could take that to the pharmacies. So we're already freeing up a lot of time. The chronic care stuff, for sure. They, they're better done by teams. The outcomes are actually better for patients. And again, that would free up doctors for doing acute medicine, mm. acute care medicine, where we're 
they needed. This is the stuff that I couldn't get into my family doctor, so I had to go to Emerge. Mm-hmm. I had to go to urgent care. <laughs> I died. All this stuff reduced. I have a question though that that like maybe maybe has a more obvious answer than I assume. But like if you're if you're saying you know free up the the doctor's time by you can free up the doctor's time by putting this on the the pharmacist can do this or a nurse can do this. Did th- they currently have capacity to mm-hmm. do this work? No, probably not. They're already overwhelmed with COVID. Let's face it. They were giving out COVID shots. They were doing COVID tests. But the fact is they're now moving into that screening section. So what would happen is that we would get the appropriate level of knowledge in there. So you don't need necessarily to be a pharmacist. A pharmacist could look at 10 studies all at once, you know, 10 of these questionnaires. Do you have any red flag symptoms? Okay, this is appropriate for fit, you know, send them the colorectal cancer test. So so that's what I'm saying. Like we could do the questionnaires, we could do it in a way that it does not involve somebody who with a high, high level of training, but somebody with a high level of training would have to look after their answers to ensure that they get the appropriate referral. Mm -hmm. So are they going to be referred for, you know, just a regular cancer screening by mail, whether it's a colorectal cancer screening or theoretically in the future, we don't have it yet, HPV testing, or should they be referred to a doctor? It's really binary. It's one Mm -hmm. or the other. Doing that, just sharing it. It won't take a lot to alleviate a lot of family doctor appointments so that those become available to other people. So it's not, it's not all or, or nothing, right? Yeah. So there will be a gray zone, a learning period where we where we get where we get it just right. So I, I'm 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 really curious about like the the that that number of like from 1971. Uh, the population going up by 75%, the family doctor population, uh, amount of family doctors going up 350% and asking where they they all are. Is it a, a matter of like going to the the article and the study that, that Jeremy was reading from and all of those numbers of where uh, family doctors' time is spent? Is it, is part of the problem that we just have like increased guidelines so much over time? And like, you know, say this like, this like uh, as a separate sort of example, this like freak accident occurs, and then all of a sudden, you know, we need to write rules to make sure that that never happens again. So like we build new procedures and processes around the way that something has happened to prevent this like rare instance of this thing happening uh, from happening again, and therefore now this thing like takes longer to do. And my question, I guess, is like in family medicine is the part of the problem that there's just so many guidelines and procedures that have been built up over time that you're not able to efficiently use your time. There's maybe, maybe nobody needs to take on extra work. Maybe the work that we're just doing is so inefficient. The guidelines come as a welcome thing, right? Because medicine has its basis, at least somewhat in science. Of course, there's a soft part of it, the understanding, the connectivity, which is crucial because if you're going to make a guideline work, that's often the blood. <laughs> That's often the connective part that makes that person want to do that, that makes them understand why it's important. But that said, you know, the guidelines are welcome because they're science. They're based on what has been found to work. And they're also, they're also understanding that people have paid often with their lives to, un- to have that guideline. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so I don't take guidelines for granted, nor is it to diss the guideline. But what is going on is that we've got an aging population, right? People are living a lot longer than they used to. So when Medicare first came around back in the early Tommy Douglas days, people lived, I mean, the average life expectancy was hardly 50. Like people died earlier. They died of basically acute infectious diseases frequently. Here's a common thing they used to write on. I'm not kidding, on autopsies. You know what the cause of death was? No joke, teeth. (laughs) That used to be a really common cause of death because there was nothing anybody could really do. If they didn't get that tooth pulled out on time, they would die of sepsis, the infection. So, So what happened? Time has really changed. Now people are living not just a little longer, a lot longer. And on top of it, they have all these chronic conditions. So we have a system that was built around the person who would, this was the assumption, they would die early, they wouldn't have the number of chronic conditions, and certainly we would not have the number of drugs that we now have at our disposal to treat them with. So it's gotten a lot more complicated. Mm. You know, so, so it wasn't really designed with this in mind. So now what we need to do is make adjustments that take all that into consideration. Mm. So the, I, I guess like what we're saying here is that the best investment of a family doctor's time is, is really acute care. Um, the, yeah, I think that's one of the smartest investments we can do and, and, mm. and open it straight out, you know, Hey, look, we don't want to spend all of our time doing time consuming activities that benefit very few people. You know, so I get, you know, CF, diabetes, they are very important, but I'm not even going to do as good a job. So, and and when people are literally waiting in the hallways because they can't get in, they have acute problems. They're not being seen. This is the reality. And, you know, what are we seeing? Mental health, serious problems. They're really right. They're going up in tandem with not having a family doctor. We see more overdose deaths. And this is tragic. It should not be happening. And what's Dr. Iris Gorfinkel doing? A pap smear. Ah! Right. (laughs) (laughs) One patient. No, it's it's like we say it, and it sounds like I collect these, actually, these absurdities in life. It's genuinely an absurdity, which should not be happening. I need to be seeing that patient who's feeling like death. And they're waiting for me. They have an acute problem right now. They don't have anybody to connect with. Is there something, is there, is there anything to be said about the, uh, I, I'm not, and I, I've been thinking about this and I'm not really sure if it fits into this conversation or not, or where, or, or, or if it does like where it fits, but like, what is there to be said about the, the, um, and, and not to sound like a, um, not to sound like a, uh, you know, like a first grade teacher that's like exercise and like, you know, eat your vegetables, but like the preventative measures that we take as human beings that, that, that reduce the amount of times that we need to see doctors in the first place. And e- even with that, like, just to piggyback on that too, because you had mentioned Iris that like 450 people will be screened until you find that one person who has the colorectal cancer or whatever. And it's like cervical cancer, cervical cancer, sorry. So, so like, like, is there just more education in general in ter- on top of like doing these healthier things that could then prevent yeah, people like, from like, like, I mean, again, again, not to, not to be that, not to be that like, you know, exercise and eat your vegetables person, but like, uh, like gentle, like, like gentle exercise is, 
it, I, I remember Peter Atia saying um, something along the lines of like, like you, it, it, you being a smoker your whole life will, will increase your risk of all cause mortality. Like, uh, like five times less than, than exercise will improve in the opposite. Will in, will, will decrease your risk of all cause mortality in the opposite direction. You know what I mean? So like, like d- exercise is, is like 10 times better for you than cigarettes are bad for you. Right. But, well, we have to be really careful with statements like that. And, I'll, and I'll, I just want to gently push back on that because with smoking, it's actually related to how much and how long. And it's a direct relationship. So the longer somebody smokes, the more they smoke, the more cigarettes per day, the higher their risk goes. And that's true for all-cause mortality. That's true for early death, cardiovascular, and stroke. So it's right across the board. So it's not to say, like, for every feather you can stick in the cap, you know, like that's an old saying, but I just say, you know, you're, you're better off. So the 10 poles of wellness, let's own them, right? Sleeping minimum seven hours a day. A Mediterranean diet. For every single one you add, you increase longevity. You know, making sure that you're having a, you know, avoiding those things that we know are carcinogenic, the smoking, the alcohol, you know, wearing your seatbelt. Every single one of these is incremental benefit. Mm. And then, of course, you know, all this preventative stuff that we talk about, you know, the diet, the exercise, the sleep, you know, so exercise minimum 150 minutes a week of at least moderate exercise, walking, what have you. So it's not, it's not even crazy over the top. But you do the basics, and boy, it makes a profound difference. It's profound. So, so I go to the osteoporosis clinic. I won't say the hospital. This is so crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm like looking there. I'm sitting in, I'm sitting in the hallway. It smells bad. Like I'm sitting, waiting, waiting <laughs> to be seen. And then I look down the hallway. It is a long, metal, old-fashioned hallway. I walk down the hallway after two hours when they call my name. I go meet the doctor, and he says, what about drug A, B, C, D? And I say, and I actually said this, how about knocking all these walls down, putting up a thermometer to raise, I don't know, a million and a half dollars, and putting a gym up here, because we know that the exercise piece is the Mm. most critical piece in fracture prevention. Mm. You know something, there's a problem with that formula. The here's your pill, See you later formula. And I, I just, I just take my, because if it were me, you know, some people have a lot of money and that money is looking for a home and that home could easily be a hospital building it out with all these new bio young people showing older people how to exercise, how to balance. And guess what that does? It lowers their fear of falling. It lowers their risk of falling. It lowers their risk of actually having a fracture number needed to treat. One, one, how many people have to be on one of those drugs in order to prevent one fracture? It's a lot. <laughs> it, 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 it really, so it really, there. it really is like, um, um, I was, um, it was another, it was something else. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Peter Tia, but he's a, he's a longevity physician. He's got a private practice. He's, he's got a great podcast called the drive. Um, very, it's very medical. I, I, I only understand about a half of what everyone's, what anyone's ever saying, but I, but I try, oh, no. I try, I try to, I try to, I try to understand it as best I can. Um, and there was something else that he said, and it was, it was kind of similar to this, to, to what you were just kind of saying about osteoporosis, that, 
that the amount of that the uh, the decrease in health span that occurs when somebody's when somebody's physical capability to um, to stand up strongly from a seated position, so going from a seated position to a standing position, when that start when that capacity to get up to get up with strength decreases, like your like your longevity and your health span is like dramatically impacted by that because of because of then the downstream impact of like sedentary lifestyle that starts to set in once you lose your ability to confidently stand up from a seated position. Well, mm. I, I could say that if that happened to me and like when, I mean, if I live to be that old, um, when that happens to me, that will be like a mental signal to me where it's like, oh, well, fuck it. I'm old now. Like I'm like, not only am I probably 90 years old when this is happening, but like like at that point, it's like the it's kind of like having your driver's license taken away. Yeah. You know, it's like this signal to you where it's like, oh, now you're old. But which is why what? it's important to oh do it. Oh my gosh, I'm having trouble. My ears are about to fall off. Listen to the <laughs> you speak, and and you know, cystic fibrosis is sitting over there in his chair thinking he doesn't know shit. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. That, that is so ridiculous. I hate to say it. You just can't had anything go wrong in your life. And I'll tell you what, what the truth is about aging and wellness. Let me just lean forward and whisper this in your ear. You know what determines if you're healthy or not? Like what, what it really does? It, it's your ability to adjust with what you have. Yeah. That's, that's the truth about wellness. Because I can come over and discover all kinds of little things you didn't even know were wrong. And what'll happen is that time does this, right? It makes you a little wrinkled. It makes you have a few gray hairs. It makes your joints not feel quite the same. And it's all incremental over time if you're lucky enough to get there. And what does a healthy person do? Run toward the light in a figurative and literal sense. Mm. You find meaning and you go after it. And you know what? Even if you can't stand up from a seated position, yeah, so you, you, drew, you do the best you can and you work with what you've got. I listen to that and I'm just thinking you are so naive. You got a lot of growing up to do. And when you when you have that, I just I just say that because I can know the the listeners are going to listen to that and you know what they're going to call you? Ageism. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you know what though, but Brian's but to, just going to give up. To, to yeah. push back to push back on that, to push back on that. To uh, to push back on that. Then why is it that that is a moment in time that has been defined? And like as Peter Atiyah was saying, as Taylor Taylor said, like that is that is a, a moment where you know once you can no longer do that, your health well, deteriorates. Well, I think I think it's because I think what you're saying. I think I think what you're saying. I think it's both true. I think what you're saying, Iris, is true. But I think that the break in the 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 link that's broken there is that you're probably right, Brian. There probably is a a a large a large swath of the population that have that occur that thought occur to them when they have that experience but what we need to instill is like the is to to join these two things together and link what iris is saying that the that we need to go we need to keep going forward I, when I we agree, have those when we have those I, yeah. things get in the way we need to we need to we need to go okay what do i do what do i do now how do i go forward and work with what i've got 100 percent. and and i think that what iris is saying is the the right perspective to have but my question is and like the thing that i was assuming that i I would, and listen, I go to therapy. So I think that when that happens to me, I'll have somebody to talk to in my life and reevaluate where I'm at and probably, hopefully, handle it in a healthy way. But my question is, is like to, to you, Iris, is 
So why is that study? Why does that study show that people's health deteriorates more quickly when they can no longer stand up? Because ultimately, I mean, there are so many levels I could start on that kind of a question. You know, the ability to stand up is a measure of a lot of things, right? It's a measure of nerves. It's a measure of muscular strength. It's a measure of will. It's a measure of mood. It's a measure of sleep. It's a measure to some extent of diet and other illnesses. So it's it's like a metric, right? But let's not conflate that, confuse that with the willingness to live and what makes life worthwhile. Mm. Really separate things. And I like I don't know about that particular podcast, but I'll share with you there are a lot of people who cannot stand, they can't stand up. And they have they've lived like that for decades. And they're fine. You know what I mean? Not fine in the sense that you might define it. But what wellness truly is, is the ability to adjust is, is with whatever health issue you have. Yeah. So if you're a patient, you said something like that, I'd probably not, you know, not in a literal sense, because I wouldn't be able to do it. But in a figurative sense, I'd probably slam you to the ground. <laughs> because people say things all the time in my office, because not because they necessarily believe them, but because that's genuinely their fear. So, you know, you might have played this game before with people you like. So you might say something like, you're with somebody, you know who loves you. And you say, you don't love me, do you? You don't love me. And you say that knowing full well and hoping they're going to say, but I do love you. You're the best person ever. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of that same dynamic where you say, you know, the day that I can't stand up, I don't know. That's that means my life is really coming to it. And I'm like, oh no, it's not. It's this is where we we take the attitude and we say, wait a second. You, you know, I've got to run toward the light. That's mm-hmm. that's the philosophy. Mm-hmm. It's not run away. I don't stand up because I'm so worried I'm gonna die of things if I don't stand. I stand because I'll feel better if I try to stand. Because it gives me meaning, because it gives me something to work toward, something to hope for. That's why I stand. You see, so it, it's very different philosophy. I didn't even know we were going to at all this. I love it. it. I love it. You know, it's it's also like this. I mean, part of the reason why this is is something that I've been thinking about lately is because my grandfather just had his license taken away. He's uh, ninety five years old. And, um, like a lot of our families sort of when talking about this, they're like, oh fuck. Like once, once that goes, that's like part of his routine is getting up in the morning and driving to the mall and going and walking like five laps around it. And, and so like, we're worried that he would lose that, um, you know, motivation to get up and go and take care of himself because like, you know, at some point maybe, maybe you do mentally throw in the towel and go, well, what's the point anymore? You know what he did the the day after he lost his license? He walked to the mall yeah. and walked the laps. <laughs> oh, yeah, and did. you know what's fucking crazy is the mall is two kilometers away. He probably walked further than he did did the day before. And my dad called me and he's like, "We're worried he's gonna just walk off into the road." And someone I'm like, "No, fuck no! This is the guy who's like yeah, he's on a mission. Needs. This he's guy's on a mission. He's, he's still walking." Yeah. So so yeah, I guess he's walking five like, k you know, To your point, Iris, like uh, hopefully. Hopefully, like I can learn from him as an example and go, you know, when that's me, I'm going to adapt. <laughs> you know, I want to I want to ask a favor of you. It's a little personal, but I'm going to put it out there. 
I want you to go to him and I want you to tell him how inspired you are mm-hmm. that at the age of 95, he continues to walk. He's a man who's read the book. He understands it better than anybody. Run toward the light. What's his name? His name's Matt. Run, Matt, run! <laughs> you know what? Uh, you know, you know, Kyla's a... Of yours, how it's done. I, I will. T- I will tell him. Right. I'll call him after this and tell him. Iris, what do you? What do you think about this advice? My my um, my my wife's grandfather is ninety eight, um, and he says the key to his longevity and to other people's longevity as well. He's pretty. He's he's pretty adamant about this about these two pieces of advice. It's weird. It's, he says masturbation a lot. Like no, and, he dropped master. <laughs> no, master. You know that was one of the that was one, but he dropped that a while ago. Now his current his current list is. <laughs> Is don't drink water and don't wear sunscreen. <laughs> well, well, I don't know. Yeah, what do you I think? What do you think? What, you, what, what, what are your, what are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on these uh, honestly, keys to long these 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 longevity hacks? I mean, don't hey, there, sleep there's, at all. there's probably something to forever plastics in both of those things, but I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, he's 98. Can, you can't argue. <laughs> I think that's another reiteration of run toward the light. Like I really do. Yeah. So if if somebody offers you. Okay, let's put it this way. You're at, you're at a wedding. You've sworn off sugar. You're not going to eat sugar. You're not going to eat fat. And they're sitting before you is the nicest chocolate vanilla icing with fudge in it, with this and that. Like, just, are you going to eat it? Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you've, sworn off, you've sworn off sugar, though. Are you going to eat it? Yes. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> Dang right. You're going to eat it. <laughs> of course you're going to eat it. And, you know, so the diabetic goes on on a cruise. You know, they spend a lot of money on this cruise. Are they going to eat the food? I hope they do. You know, because sometimes in life, you got to do that. <laughs> you got to step out of the rocks, go across the river, even though you might fall in. Mm-hmm. I, I get that. But, it, but what happens is, though, that is a very, it's a very conscious, mindful way of living life. You know, is it? Absolutely no alcohol ever. Well, in theory, in practice, that's so. Mm. You know, so, so this is where where we have to, you know, make our own art piece. We have to find our own space and, I feel, and try try to live up to that. I, I feel like this uh, this kind of throws back to uh, the the prescription that you you had mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, which was going placidly amid the noise and haste. Uh, and, and before we, we wrap with you, Iris, I would love to actually just read that poem. Um, it is, it, it's from, uh, it is an, an excerpt from Desiderata, uh, Desiderata, Desiderata. Dude. go placidly amid the noise and haste and remember what peace there may be in silence as far as possible without surrender, be on good terms with all persons, speak your truth quietly and clearly and listen to others, even the dull and the ignorant. They too have their story. Take kindly the counsel of the years, gracefully surrendering the things of youth, nurture strength of spirit to shield you in sudden misfortune. But do not distress yourself with dark imaginings. Many fears are born of fatigue and loneliness beyond a wholesome discipline. Be gentle with yourself. You are a child of the universe. No less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you. No doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. I haven't, I, I realize now that I am familiar with that and I haven't heard it in a good deal of years and it is so beautiful. 
I think that's a, <clears throat> a perfect place to wrap this up. Iris, uh, again, we never know what we're going to get when you come on the show. It's always an absolute delight. You are, uh, you are a shining light among uh, you know, Canadian physicians, and we are just absolutely grateful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for, for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us today. Many thanks for, for having me, and, and many thanks for reading that poem. It reminds me of the experience of watching It's a Wonderful Life. I'm mm. such a yeah. Why do I cry every time? I know where the poem is going. <laughs> going. It's a wonderful it, life. Yeah. It, it's really quite lovely. Many thanks. Thank you, Iris. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.